0: If you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Peter, and if you're joining with us for the first time this morning, we're in the midst of this series that we have called Exiles uh, in this book of 1 Peter because Peter calls the church such, a church to look different, alien, stranger, uh, and we are temporary residents on this planet for the purpose of bringing the good news of Jesus Christ, and um, this morning we're going to turn to chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 13 through 22 together. Let's hear now God's word. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you of a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. This morning, I want to talk about where faith and fear collide. Where faith and fear collide. And to get us thinking, I want to invite you to think about your greatest fear with me. What is it that you fear the most? And I don't mean uh, like phobias, like spiders or heights. I, I want to get a bit deeper than that. So, so maybe we ask it like this. Um, what is it that you fear the most when you think about tomorrow? When you consider your future self, what, what fears or anxiety rise to the surface? Years ago, I ended up as a witness in a robbery and attempted murder case in, When I think about fear, that one plays a significant role in my life. Jen and I um, had heard of these home invasions when we were living down in Houston. And so just on a whim, I decided we'd remove these front bushes in front of our house and install a camera. And I believe it was just weeks later that this vehicle parks in front of our house. These men, masked up, three of them jump out of their car and they run to our side yard. But instead of opening our gate, they opened our neighbor's. I'll never forget Jen's phone call. I was at work, she had just finished putting our firstborn down for a nap, and it just so happened my camera held all the evidence of this crime ring I wish I never met. About two years later we moved to Bozeman, and I get another call. Jen called me a little bit in a panic, she said she saw footprints in the snow in our side yard, so I run home, I look around, I did some investigation, and after some deep analysis, I concluded we had been visited by a very suspicious suspect that was most certainly a white-tailed deer. <laughs> See, fear is a primal thing, right? It is this instinct within us that, on the one hand, helps us survive, but, but when it comes to our faith, it is often a debilitating response to the world around us. You think about some of your most vivid memories in your past. They still play into the future today because they were probably conceived in fear. And yet one of our most common commands in Scripture is do not fear. And it seems to me when it comes to our faith, the church has always wrestled with that dichotomy, right? How do we faithfully live for Christ in the midst of a world that often induces this fear that is within us? Already in the letter of 1st Peter we've picked it up time and time again. This issue is a major factor among the fellowship. There is this persecution that is on the horizon. They feel firsthand that they become misfits in society, exiles as Peter names them. And there is this problem of fear that has now rooted itself into the body like cancer. Look again at verse 14. Have no fear of them, Peter says, nor be troubled. Who is them, and what's the trouble? I was at a conference months ago, as many of you know, and this very topic came about. It was during a Q&A session with uh, some of our keynote speakers, and someone asked, they said, what do I do if my employer compels me to act against my conscience? What, what is the protocol there? And you could almost immediately hear this murmur of thousands in the room. The question struck a relevant chord, right? When faith and fear collide or faith and work collide. See, you and I, we we know fear, right? It's, It's this casual friend that keeps showing up uninvited for dinner. Fear is always at play, especially, I think, when it's our calling to live out the faith. We fear rejection. We fear our reputation. We fear conflict. We fear job loss. We fear financial fallout, we we fear lawsuits, we fear harm. And let's be real, fear is a very potent motivator. If you look at your spending habits, for instance, think about them, or your saving habits, or just your lifestyle in general, somewhere in the midst of all that, if you look deep enough, you will find and discover sprouts of fear in the midst of you and your family. And it seems to me that what Peter wants to show this church is is fear is kind of like a fire, right? If it's contained and it's moving in the right direction, it's this God-giving gift that protects and comforts us. I think about King David, right, who asked the rhetorical question, the Lord is my shepherd, whom shall I fear? And so when you put your fear in the person of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, you're grounded. It's a good thing. But when fear gets let loose, and we allow it to fixate on the wrong objects of life, on the temporary things, it becomes this destructive and reckless force that robs you of joy and contentment. So Peter gives this lesson, right? Helping us to see how our fears interplay with our faith. And I love how he begins this, before he he even steps into the arena, he tells this early church who is, is looking at the face of tyranny that their fears are likely unfounded. Can you imagine? Look at this. Look at this guardrail. Look how he begins. Verse 13. Who is going to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? In other words, before we even talk about fear, Peter says, let's just process the logic of the idea. What if your fear is an overreaction? He says, if, if you focus on doing the right thing, who do you think is going to harm you? Again, who is them and what trouble are we planning for? You know, in the Greek, the word is, uh, this word is in the optative mood. And remember, the optative, it uh, expresses like an unlikely future, like a, a wish or a, a desire. So it's almost as if before Peter even gets to the topic of fear, he first calls on this church to, ch- church to check themselves from the, the drama that they've been catering to. Have you been playing the victim card, he says? Let's, let's not borrow trouble. Who is going to harm you? What are the odds if you just focus on Jesus Christ? You know, I think about it, today's church and how we get pulled by politics and social issues and headlines and marketing. And I feel like this is a very, uh, this is a very relevant lesson, right? We, we often hear intentional extremes, whether it's from the podium or publications or podcasts. Marketing 101 is... Lead them by fear. So if you can convince Christians, the large majority in the country, that freedom is at stake, and that the world is coming to an end and nothing is settled anymore, and that we could be moving to the gulags soon in our faith, those that speak to us know that what motivates is fear. It leads to votes and dollars. And while all of this certainly brings legitimate concern, I'm not dismissing it all, I think we should acknowledge that if we're not shrewd, if we're not wise, we'll fall into this trap that Peter's trying to guard us from. Peter says, when it comes to your fears and your faith, you should ask, who is it that's going to harm you? I feel like this is a really relevant point, right? If, if, if we could just focus as the church on doing right, if we would commit ourselves to, to what is beautiful and just and blameless, Peter says, chances are no one is going to harm you. And just think about this, this is a bold statement. Peter is making this statement in the days of Nero, breathing out fiery threats against God's people. I love how Proverbs 16, seven expands on this. It says this, when a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies be at peace with him. You know, as we think about our fears and we think about living our faith, I think we should stop and ask, what am I telling myself right now and is it true? Because here's the first danger when it comes to dealing with fear. If we're not careful, we can quickly get caught up in this doomsday narrative, right? All the while, life is passing you by as you stand paralyzed about something that probably won't even come to fruition. Jesus said it like this, Matthew 6. He said, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow has enough trouble. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Well, now that Peter's held the drama in check, Um, He's going to spend the rest of this lesson focused on the what if, the just in case. And again, this is a very timeless issue, this this idea of fear. And he wants to answer the question, what happens if we do face hardship or opposition or even persecution for our faith? What, What then? And this is how he begins. Look at verse 14. He says, if the worst does come, if you should suffer for righteousness sake, he said, here's three things that you should consider as you go through that storm. That's what I want to spend the rest of our time on this morning. How do we keep fear at bay in order to better witness Christ with these three things? The first one that Peter says, he says, in your suffering you should count yourself as blessed. You know, you think about it, that that word is contradictory, right? Just this morning, somebody at the legacy site asked me how I'm doing, and just to play with them, I said, I'm blessed. You know, when you think about that classic Christianese We typically don't mean it in the sense of suffering, right? We typically mean it like, I'm overwhelmed with blessings. God has given me more than I deserve, I'm I'm blessed. In fact, I've never used that word blessing to describe my suffering. But here's Peter, he says, if you suffer for righteousness sake, you are blessed. Jesus would concur, he says this in Matthew five. He said, "Blessed blessed are you when others revile you, Persecute you, utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. How are we blessed in the midst of suffering? How is that? See, the way that we temper our fear, whatever it might be, I think is that we need to change our mindset about what blessing really means. We need to, I I heard it a few weeks ago. Jesus' resurrection, if you think about it, was the greatest revolution, the greatest political revolution this world has ever known, right? Because before that moment, any tyrant could threaten the masses with torture and suffering and even death, and by that threat, he could hold them in his hand. But ever since Easter morning, there's now this this stubborn church that has this blessing, no longer needing to fear uh, death or pain or suffering, because as Paul says it, nothing can now separate us from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ our Lord, So the way that we rightly position our fears, whatever they might be, especially when we think about our faith, is by reorienting our definition of what it is to be blessed. To be blessed is to be saved by the extravagant grace of Jesus Christ, proven to us on the cross. To be blessed is to stand certain that we too will rise from the dead. To be blessed is to know that even when you feel alone or you think you are alone, you are never alone. If you suffer for righteousness sake, Peter says you are blessed. First thing we need to do is we need to redefine what we mean by that word blessing. Second thing we need to do is we need to reorient the aim of our fear. Look again at this in verse 14. Peter says, have no fear of them nor be troubled but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. You know in AD 70 in that Roman Empire in that time that threat was before you every day in your following of Jesus Christ. The threat of loss of property, of abandonment, loss of family, of imprisonment, of, of torture. See, but for Peter it's really simple. He says you could fear them, whoever they are, let them trouble your heart. You could obsess about what might come tomorrow, which is where often the human mind goes, or you could spend your time honoring Christ. Honor Christ the Lord is holy. Ed Welch summarized the problem like this. He said, the problem with our fear is that we replace God with people. We replace God with people. I think we've got a quote up there. Instead of biblically guided fear of the Lord, we fear others. Reminds me of Jesus' words right after he's revealed to his disciples that he's gonna go to the cross and they're shook up. He says in John 14, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. Last year, Chapman University put out a nationwide survey in order to better understand what it is that we fear. And out of hundreds of fears they, that they listed for their study, this is what they found. This is what keeps most of us up at night. Look at this list corrupt government officials, someone I love becoming ill or dying, nuclear weapons, world war, loss of drinking water, loss of finances, economic collapse, biological warfare. And as you read that list, like, there's a common thread that begins to emerge, right? Can you see it? As you look at each one of those, there's something unique that ties them all together, right? And what ties them all together is that none of those things are rooted in the fear of the Lord. And at the same time, for the most part, here's what's unique. At the same time, those things on that list, most of them are out of our hands entirely. We can't do anything about them. And yet the survey found that these are very real fears that we carry on our backs like a burden. If we're not careful, fear becomes an idol and we we end up worshiping fear, the fear of man rather than worshiping the fear of God. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said it like this. He said, those who are afraid of men have no fear of God, but those who fear God have no fear of men. I think that's worth processing for a minute. Those who are afraid of men have no fear of God, but those who fear God have no fear of men. Let me say that a bit differently. This this isn't mine, but it's just as good. When you fear the Lord, you fear nothing else. When you don't, you'll fear everything else. See, we know fear, right? Whether you show it or not, fear is inevitable. It's it's primal, it's instinctive. But what we do with fear, that's what makes the difference. See, in the fear that Peter is dealing with It's a very tangible fear. What what am I to do with those on the horizon who are probably coming after the church for what we believe? This is not an irrational question. But the answer for Peter is that when you fear, you should redirect your fear to the appropriate place. How do we manage our fear in the midst of our faith? First, remember, if you suffer, you are blessed. We need to redefine our blessings. Second, we need to fear God instead of man and reorient our fears Third, Peter says we need to be prepared. We need to redefine, reorient, and finally, we need to reestablish our footing. Reestablish our footing. Look at this in verse 15. Peter says, Always be prepared to make a defense of anyone who asks for you, a reason of the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Some of you might remember years ago, a friend and I went up for a drive to the mountains. And I just had this surgery on my foot, so the plan was to drive to this lake and hobble down into a chair and just fish for a while. It had just been a few days since I was under the knife. And about the time we got to the lake, we came up to this snowdrift in the road, and it looked fully passable. Two college kids looked at this thing, and we thought, yeah, let's, let's, let's tackle that. So my friend, he gunned it. We got halfway through this little mini snowfield, and before we know it, the forerunner sank. Started spinning our tires, rocked back and forth a couple of times, got out, and with my boot, tried to shovel out the snow. And we realized quickly we were in trouble. I had no heavy jacket. I'm in this cast. There's no cell phone uh, reception. We, we had no shovel, there's no sandbags. So the only option now we knew was to grab the crutches and go for a hike. Well, my friend made it much further than I did, and by God's grace, we, we found just enough cell phone reception to send out one text. Didn't even know if it went through. And about four hours later, our youth pastor, who was also the head of the search and rescue in the valley, showed up to save us with a bunch of four wheelers. And you might say there was quite a bit of shaming because we were quite ill prepared. If you are living your faith and you're doing it right, then those around you are going to take notice. They are going to see the hope that is in you that they don't have. And they might not casually ask you. In the case of this this scripture, it's actually referring to, to Peter saying to the church, you might be called to the courts or interviewed publicly. And he says, you always should be prepared to give an account of the hope that is in you. And not only should you be so rooted in that that you can speak eloquently, but in so doing, you should be able to speak without feeling threatened in gentleness and respect. You know, I think if there is one area of exhortation for today's church, like that's it right there, right? Not just that we come prepared for the, for the message, but also how we proclaim our message is just as important. You know, when the main action of secular society is to cause a reaction, how we react makes all the difference as we witness what we believe. And I think when it comes to fear in the midst of our faith, in the midst of the church, we need to redefine our blessings, we need to reorient our fears, and we need to reestablish that footing. And it's crazy, right? Just as the lesson makes sense, now Peter goes off on this odd tangent about the days of Noah. Did you stay with me as we read through that? It's like, yep, you're kind of reading through it, yep, this all makes sense. And then he starts talking about Jesus proclaiming to the spirits in prison and Noah, and you're like, what is going on? Side, side curve. Look again at this, look at this. For Christ also suffered for, his, for, for our sins that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit. And everybody shakes their head and goes, yep, I'm still with you, Peter. In which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. What? What is Noah's ark have to do with any of this. You know, there's widespread uh, speculation about who these spirits are that Jesus is speaking to and, and why Peter would bring this up mid-lesson, right? Are these spirits of the Old Testament? Are these spirits who are uh, in prison who have died? I think those you could set aside. It seems to me what Noah's saying is actually a perfect segue and that is, this is the, the path that I would choose. Seems to me, Peter just spent all this time talking about fear, right? All this, this energy on persecution and opposition and what the church should do when it comes. And you think about it, no one probably suffered more ridicule or mockery for living his faith than Noah did. I mean, the guy would have, talk about an exile, he'd have been seen as crazy, right? You're building a boat for a flood in the midst of dry land and you think the earth is gonna come crashing down. Here's this righteous man living in this broken and evil society. He's heard from the Lord, he's standing firm, and everyone must have thought that guy was crazy. You better believe Noah wrestled with fear, fear of losing his family, fear of losing his savings as he invests in the end of the world, fear of losing friends, fear of his reputation. All the while, this boat, preaches one big message of judgment and salvation and repentance. And here's my take. It seems to me Peter's trying to make the point that just as Jesus used Noah to proclaim the truth to those who were captive, lost in society, these lost spirits, without fear or hesitation, so now we too are called to honor Christ as he still proclaims that news to the captives today. So let's just finish right in the same place we began. When you think about your faith and your future, what is it that you fear? Who is it that you fear? What is it that brings your heart trouble? And ask yourself, how rational are those fears really? Who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good, Peter says. And let's say that the opposition is real. Let's say that it actually does come to us and we see a change. Here's how we stay committed in Christ. Count yourself as blessed. Redefine your blessings. Instead of fearing man, reorient your fear to the holiness of Jesus Christ. And rather than investing in worry, reestablish your footing in being prayer, prepared. Prepared. As we close, I wanna pray through some additional words of scripture. If you'll close your eyes, let's just pray through this. I want you to hear this straight from the mouth of God's word. Isaiah 41.10, Fear not, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Deuteronomy 31, 6. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them. For the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Psalm 56, 3 to 4. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? 2 Timothy 1, 7. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear but of power and love and self-control. God, we just bring to you, all of us uniquely, individually, our anxieties, our fears, our worries of tomorrow. God, we remember how uh, you clothed the flowers, how you, you fed the, the birds, and we shrink back to think of how awesome you are God, and if you would care for them, how much you would care for your people. So, Lord, we we pray, would you help us to leave our fears here in this place? God, would you help to reorient our minds that even if the worst should come, whatever the worst might be, Lord, that we would not have fear of them, but that we would remain steadfast in our fear of you. God, lead us by your sovereign word. Help us to redefine our blessings. Help us to reorient our fear. Lord, help us to reestablish and to be prepared to give an account of the hope that is in us when a world that is lost founds us, finds us grounded and rooted in you. In Jesus' name, all God's people said,